I'm Kendall Giles, and this is the Techno Slipstream Podcast, where we explore what you need to know about the intersection of science, technology, and society. This is Episode 20. For our second Winter Moss Podcast episode, today we're going to explore the unintended consequences of a technology you and I use every day. Email. And of course, by email, I mean email messages, Slack channels, Skype chats, text messages, all of these digital modes we've created to keep us tethered to our devices, in contact, and our attention fragmented. We'll ground our discussions with Cal Newport's new book, A World Without Email. In this episode, we'll see why email at first seemed like a good idea, but has really wrecked havoc with our productivity, time, and health. As a potential bright side, we'll also look at a few things we can do to regain control of email and our lives. So, let's dive in. Cal Newport is rather interesting in that he is particularly qualified to discuss the unintended consequences of email. Cal received his Ph.D. in computer science in 2009 from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and he's currently the Provost Distinguished Associate Professor in the Department of Computer Science at Georgetown University, where he studies computer networks, communications, and distributed systems. But here's the clincher. He's also a New York Times bestselling author of books such as So Good They Can't Ignore You, Deep Work, and Digital Minimalism. These books explore developing a successful career, focusing on work that matters, and minimizing technological distractions. His latest book, A World Without Email, Reimagining Work in an Age of Communication Overload, published in March of 2021, is the book we'll be diving into in today's podcast episode. Okay, in order to talk about email, I know we're all familiar with it, but let's briefly start at the beginning. Email's origins go back to the early time-sharing mainframe computers in the 1960s, where users could send text messages and files to one another. In the late 1960s, ARPANET connected some universities and government agencies together. And in 1971, the first ARPANET email was sent by an engineer named Ray Tomlinson, who's also, by the way, known for choosing the infamous at email address symbol to separate the email address username from the domain. So in addition to how we communicate, that's been changing, note that the workplace was also changing. In a New Yorker article, Cal discusses how in the U.S. in the year 1860, there were about 750,000 people working in professional service jobs. Whereas by 1920, that number had grown to more than 4 million people. And of course, by professional service, we refer to those types of jobs and careers as knowledge workers. As corporate buildings grew in size to hold all these new knowledge workers, coordinating and communicating with these office workers became more difficult. Early on, communication was done by complex networks of telephone interchanges, inter-office delivery systems of letters and notes and pieces of paper, 
and many, many secretaries to dictate, send, and receive various communications. And there were also lots and lots of meetings. In order for a manager to communicate to multiple people at one time, this required the manager to schedule a room at a particular time where everyone could physically come in and sit down and listen to the communication, be in the same room at the same time. I know that's kind of creepy to think about, such large physical gatherings in the middle of our pandemic, but that's how we worked for decades. However, by the late 1980s, email use became more common in industry, government offices, and universities. And by the late 1990s, public email use started to grow as well. With email, people could send messages to each other asynchronously. Unlike a telephone call where both the caller and the person called must be on the phone at exactly the same time, that's synchronously in order to communicate, with email, the sender could send their message without being dependent on the receiver's schedule. The receiver could also read the email when it suited their particular schedule without having to worry about meeting up with the sender. This technology dramatically affected how people communicated and worked. In fact, in the book, Cal cites research that found that between 1965 and 1984, typical knowledge workers spent about 20% of their time at their desks doing work and about 40% of their time in meetings. But after the year 2002, those percentages were reversed. Email reduced the amount of time workers needed to be in meetings and increased the amount of time they could dedicate to their work. Unfortunately, this apparent productivity win had unintended consequences. In the old pre-email work model, we would go to a meeting, hear a particular communication, then go back to our desk to get back to work. In the email work era, however, Cal cites research that found that in the year 2019, the average business user sends and receives 126 messages per day. This means that in order to be current on any recent or important communications, workers must constantly interrupt their actual work in order to check email. Sending and receiving email essentially has become a second parallel job for knowledge workers. This is a new way of working, where we can send emails or Slack messages whenever it's convenient for us, but as receivers, we must constantly fragment and interrupt our work or to check to see if we've received a new, possibly important, message. Cal calls this new way we work today the hyperactive hive mind, a workflow centered around ongoing conversation fueled by unstructured and unscheduled messages delivered through digital communication tools like email and instant messenger services. And this new hyperactive hive mind way of working is horrible. The book goes into a lot more detail, but here's a summary of the main points Cal gives for why, instead of making us happy, productive knowledge workers, email is making us miserable. First, email reduces productivity. While email's claim to fame was that it allowed for asynchronous communication, meaning that, again, the sender could send a communication when it was convenient for the sender, and the receiver could read that communication when it was convenient for the receiver. Yet the result is we must then monitor our email and other communication channels throughout the day 
and even in the evenings after work, constantly switching our attention from the work we should be doing to our inboxes. Some managers even mandate their employees constantly monitor their Slack or other channels. Perhaps the managers are using that as a proxy for making sure their employees are actually working. But this constant need for our brains to switch contexts from the task to email to Slack to a different task many times per hour is crushing us. One study reported we shift our attention once every three minutes on average. The problem, of course, is that our brains are not suited for these rapid context shifts. As noted in the book, when you attempt to maintain multiple ongoing electronic conversations while also working on a primary task like writing a report or coding a computer program, your prefrontal cortex must continually jump back and forth between different goals, each requiring the amplification and suppression of different brain networks. Not surprisingly, this network switching is not an instantaneous process. It requires both time and cognitive resources. The result is our cognitive abilities actually slow down, and we get less work done per unit of time than if we did not have these constant interruptions. Thus, email makes us less productive. And this leads us to Cal's second point about email. Not only does email make us less productive, but it makes us feel miserable. Cal surveyed some 1,500 knowledge workers about their relationship with email, and here are a few quotes from them. And you let me know if what they say sounds similar to how you might respond. It's slow and very frustrating. I often feel like email is impersonal and a waste of time. I hate that I can never be off. It creates anxiety. I'm frazzled just keeping up. I feel an almost uncontrollable need to stop what I'm doing to check email. It makes me very depressed, anxious, and frustrated. For me personally, I feel a sense of stress if I go a long period of time without checking email. Is there something urgent I need to respond to? In addition to anxiety produced over monitoring the channel, using email or Slack to send text messages also increases stress because text messages are said to be less effective communication formats than, say, an in-person communication. In a text message, nuances such as humor, sarcasm, and emotion are often hard to communicate and get misinterpreted, meaning we must go to more effort to clearly communicate our message without causing offense. We end up sending more text messages stretched out across the day between two people that could have been just communicated with just one short in-person chat. Moreover, because there's no friction, no resistance in sending an email, I just have to type the message and press a button. Anyone can fire off emails any time of day or night whenever something crosses their mind. In other words, it's easy for the sender to get something off their plate and put it onto your plate by firing off a quick email that you need then to respond to, resulting in an overwhelming feeling of overload as constant streams of new taskings and demands for your time and your attention continuously pile up into your inbox. So for all these reasons, the net effect is that email makes us miserable. And just one more thing. Not only does email make us less productive as well as miserable, as another 
unintended consequence email has caused us to adopt the hyperactive hive mind style of work. While the ability to asynchronously fire off an email to someone, say to propose a meeting date and time for some time-sensitive project or event, consider the insidious chain of events that often follows. Person A sends an email to person B about this urgent meeting that needs to take place. At some point later in the day, person B gets and reads the email, notes a conflict with the proposed time, and so responds back to person A with a new, revised time. But since this is a time-sensitive issue, both person A and person B must now constantly monitor their inboxes in order to resolve this scheduling crisis. If person A then needs to make some other change to the meeting time or place, person A must then respond back to person B, and so on, back and forth throughout the day. This one scheduling need has resulted in a flurry of back-and-forth messages requiring constant attention and anxiety to resolve, and they haven't even had the meeting or done any work yet. And that's just with two people involved. Just consider the amplification of this messaging flurry and confusion with each additional person added to the meeting. The book notes that research on distributed network computer systems has shown that asynchronous communication complicates attempts to coordinate, and therefore it's almost always worth the extra cost to require the introduction of more synchrony. And this is even more so with human asynchronous communication. So hopefully by now you realize that the feelings of frustration or anxiety or pressure you may feel with your job is not due to you. It's email and the resulting hyperactive hive mind mode of work we've shifted to in our knowledge work. In fact, in a sense, we've all been set up for failure in our knowledge economy. As we discussed, especially in the first three episodes of the Techno Slipstream podcast, management scientists applied their optimization analysis to industrial worker jobs, establishing specific rules for how each worker was to do their job in order to optimize efficiency, reduce cost, and increase productivity. Yet those same management scientists, such as Peter Drucker, said not to apply those same optimization approaches to knowledge worker jobs. Cal notes that as late as 1999, Peter Drucker said, knowledge work demands that we impose the responsibility for their productivity on the individual knowledge workers themselves. Knowledge workers have to manage themselves. They have to have autonomy. Thus, since no guidance is actually given for how knowledge workers assign, delegate, and communicate about how they're to perform their jobs, we all just kind of make it up as we go, we've settled on the most convenient way to do this work, the hyperactive hive mind approach of sending quick emails to each other 24 hours a day to figure out how to do the work. As Cal says, just shoot me an email and let's rock and roll. In the second half of the book, A World Without Email, Cal offers some suggestions for how to dig out of this communication hole we've dug for ourselves. His main suggestions are not on how we perform our individual tasks. Knowledge workers still get to choose exactly how they want to approach and resolve particular problems. They still retain their autonomy for executing their jobs. Rather, his focus is on the workflows and activities that surround those tasks. The processes for how the tasks get coordinated and delegated to you, and for communicating within an organization. While we should 
let knowledge workers have autonomy over execution. If we just let those workers also have autonomy over how those tasks are identified, assigned, coordinated, and reviewed, the result is this hyperactive hive mind. It's the low-hanging fruit, a workflow that we just established as a convenient but horrible way to work. Thus, we need workflows that optimize knowledge workers' abilities to focus on and execute their jobs. This idea is the basis of what he calls the attention capital principle. The productivity of the knowledge sector can be significantly increased if we identify workflows that better optimize the human brain's ability to sustainably add value to information. Cal offers a lot of examples, suggestions, and case studies in the book about workflows that are better than the hyperactive hive mind. But one concrete example that most any knowledge worker can utilize is controlling how and when they respond to email during the workday. Instead of constantly shifting your attention between your work and checking your inbox multiple times per hour, instead we should focus on minimizing or eliminating how often you check your inbox, or better yet, minimizing or eliminating people sending you email in the first place. You won't be able to eliminate people sending you communications with you entirely, but the idea is to overlay structure on when and how we communicate to prevent the disasters of the hyperactive hive mind approach of random, constant, unstructured email messages and slacks throughout the day, along with the constant overriding need to check and respond to those communication channels. For example, you could utilize a strategy common in academia, office hours. You could establish a set of office hours throughout the day and week where you are available for meetings, for communications, for checking and responding to your messages. Put those office hour blocks on your corporate calendar and block off other times on your calendar. Those blocked off times are for you to dedicate to uninterrupted time where you can get your work done without having to worry about constant random interruptions. Now, obviously, the strategy won't work for everyone in every single work environment, but it does work extremely well for frequent non-urgent communications. Cal also gives lots of other examples and suggestions that you could use to tweak your particular situation. For sure, shifting how and when others can communicate with you and how and when you respond to those communications may take some education of your boss and coworkers, especially if the work culture where you work is based on the hyperactive hive mind workflow. But this shift is critical if you want to escape from the unproductive misery of the constant, random, back-and-forth emails and slacks that divide your attention, make you exhausted, and prevent you from getting your best work done. Constraining how and when you fragment your attention to check these communication channels is just one example of what Cal calls the process principle. Introducing smart production processes to knowledge work can dramatically increase performance and make the work much less draining. And there's so much more in this book I think you will find enlightening and useful, especially if you are an exhausted, frustrated knowledge worker trying to get your life and work under control. Your time and attention are limited, and if you want to be the best at what you do, then you will need to be proactive about guarding your time and use processes that optimize the time you have to focus on what you need to get done. Cal ends his book citing the wonderful Neil Postman. 
We need to proceed with our eyes open so that we may use technology rather than be used by it. Cal goes on to say, If you're one of the many millions exhausted by your inbox, hopeful that there must be a better way to do good work in a culture currently obsessed by constant connectivity, then it's time to open your eyes. And, of course, it's time to also open your ears. Listen to more podcast episodes. That's all we have today for episode 20. Hope you enjoyed it. And please check out Cal's book. Also, please head over to patreon.com slash Kendall Giles to our Patreon page to sign up and support the show. In any case, again, thank you for listening. And until next time, I'll see you in the Techno Slipstream. <laughs>